Hello and hello. Welcome one and welcome all to the Around the World podcast. I am your host, the one, the only Clark Van Deventer. And today on the podcast, it's an installment, our third installment. Are you enjoying this as much as I am? Our third installment of Why Don't We Do That? A new series on the podcast where I interview interesting people and ask them questions about curious things they have observed in their travels around the world. All right, let me bring you up to speed. What I typically have done on the podcast, I am introducing you or taking you on a little tour of some country, some little corner of the great planet Earth, and that country that I feature on the podcast just happens to be the same country I have taught about in my hit class around the world with Mr. Clark. These are live classes that meet every week on Zoom and you can sign your kids up. But around the time I was starting this podcast around the world, I had an idea for another podcast. I wanted to call that podcast, Why Don't We Do That? All right, what I later figured out is that these two ideas right? An idea for an around the world podcast and an idea for a, why don't we do that podcast? They go together. And that rather than starting a whole nother podcast, I just needed to start a, why don't we do that series and make it part of this podcast. The idea is this, right? As a traveler, when I visit a new country, I don't expect it to look like my country. In fact, I want it to look different. But my home country, the USA, we are a country of immigrants. And one of the things that's great about America is that we have taken all the best stuff from all over the world and we've made it ours. About the most American thing I can do is find cool stuff from around the world, bring it here and make it ours. So, all right, what we do on the podcast is I'm just interviewing people who've also traveled around the world, who've also observed some cool stuff, who maybe have found themselves asking that question, why don't we do that? And we have some great conversations. All right, the first interview in this series was with Greg Denning, and we talked about France. The second was with Sabina King, and we talked about Bali. Um, Today's guest. Today's guest is the Reverend Dr. Joanne Lyon. Joanne Lyon is amazing. All right. I am a graduate of Indiana Wesleyan University. All right. Now, for those of you not familiar with the Wesleyan Church, this is a fairly small but significant Protestant denomination. Uh, If you know your church history, when you hear Wesleyan, you may suspect that John Wesley has something to do with this. Now, John Wesley is often cited as the founder of Methodism, but he is not the founder of the Methodist Church. He was the founder of a Methodist movement, which would grow into what we now know as the Methodist Church. The Wesleyans they're kind of like a spinoff of the Methodist Church. So I am not a Wesleyan, but I do have a lot of Wesleyan in me. So I was very curious about this woman, Joanne Lyon, when I first heard that she had been 
The year was 2012. In 2012, she was elected the first woman to be the general superintendent of the Wesleyan Church worldwide. Uh, Joanne and I would have known many of the same people, and she was way more important than me, but we would have known lots of the same people uh, just from my time at Indiana Wesleyan and right her role in the Wesleyan Church. But I did not get to uh, know her. I didn't get a chance to know her until 2020 when I started working with the faith-based relief and development organization World Hope International, which Joanne had founded now more than 25 years ago. Uh, Joanne had for several years served as CEO of World Hope. Uh, when I was working with World Hope, she was no longer CEO and she was no longer the general superintendent of the Westland Church, but she was still very active and very involved in World Hope. And when she had left her role as general superintendent of the Westland Church worldwide, she was named the first ambassador of the Westland Church and also given the title general superintendent emerita. Um, Joanne also serves on the board of directors of many organizations um, bred for the world. She's the vice chair of the board of the National Association of Evangelicals. This is a very um, historically important organization, the National Association of Evangelicals. Um, she's on the board of the National Religious Partnership for the Environment, the Council on Faith of the World Economic Forum. She is previously on uh, President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. She holds a master's degree in counseling psychology. She continued her graduate studies in historical theology, has been granted five honorary doctorates, and ordained minister of the Westland Church. Decades of experience in pastoral ministry. I will tell you, she has pastored me at times. Uh, the recipient of the 2016 World Methodist Peace Award, the 2017 Keeper of the American Dream Award from the National Immigration Forum in Washington, D.C., lots of other awards. Uh, she knows everyone. When I talked with her, she was just back from a conference in Saudi Arabia. She and her husband, uh, the Reverend Wayne Lyon, live in the Indianapolis area, have four children, ten grandchildren. And I just want to say this personally about Joanne. I have a picture in my office of another Reverend Doctor. Uh, it's the famous photo of one of the arrests of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And it's with that photo, it's probably the most famous photo of him being arrested. He's kind of leaning on a counter. And I have the words lean on the bend on that print. And this idea, leaning on the bend, this has become, um, I'm realizing, at least in part, part of my, my personal mission statement to lean on the bend. Dr. Martin Luther King said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And I want to lean on the bend. I want to take all the weight of my life, and I want to lean on the bend 
and try to bend that moral art toward justice. And that has been a thought very much in my mind this year. And as I have considered this, I have thought, the one person I have thought a lot about is Joanne Lyon. She is a woman who represents this idea to me. She has taken all of the weight of her life and tried to lean on the bed and bend that moral arc of the universe toward justice. Um, all right. Joanne has been to 88 countries. 88! So how do we pick one to talk about? In our conversation, we focused on the West African country of Sierra Leone. So, without further ado, please enjoy this interview with the one, the only, the Reverend Dr. Joanne Lyon. All right, Joanne, welcome to the program. Yeah. Great to have you on today. So it's just such, you. just such a privilege to have you on the show and uh, having your perspective, having visited 88, 88 different countries. That's right. Uh, okay, now, I don't think, as you were traveling through these 88 countries, I, I have a feeling that you weren't just searching for your favorite beach. Hardly. <laughs> I can't remember any beaches in most of these countries. <laughs> so, all right, what, what motivated you to do all that traveling? Well, actually... Um, I had, um, uh, I've been in a few countries, uh, and, uh, well, you know, of course in the United States, we go to Canada and Mexico, that's kind of a given, but, uh, excuse me, my first country of, of, of turmoil, I guess I should say, was in 1985, and I was invited down to Nicaragua in the middle of the Contra War. Uh, and no, I didn't see any beaches and I didn't see anything. I saw a lot of suffering people, uh, and the confusion of all of that politically from the United States and then in the faith perspective and all of these kinds of things. And, um, so, um, I was invited down, uh, with that and it was basically, it, I was there with a group of faith, uh, faith leaders, uh, to, with, with what, where are people and what is happening here and begin to understand it from their perspective not from what we were reading in the newspapers in the United States or elsewhere, what was the, and how were they living? And then that same year, I was invited to Ethiopia during the famine uh, with the ABC News to film a documentary. And again, that no beaches, nothing. It was very painful to see so many people dying of starvation. And uh, Ethiopia is still known as the largest famine in modern history. Uh, so it was it was huge, Clark, and it was, and I I was I found myself being interested. It was very interesting because it was so overwhelming to me. I found myself unconsciously just wanting to be with the film crew. Mm -hmm. Don't let me be face to face with these people that are dying. And uh, and one day we were in one of these feeding camps. Uh, Oxfam sets them up. They're very well organized and it's in levels levels of starvation and where you go and whatever. So they have a big field that people come to first and do the triage. I did not want to go out to that field. But one day this nurse from Save the Children out of the UK just grabbed me by the arm and she said, you're coming out to the field. And I thought, well, all the cameras aren't here. So I don't care about those cameras. You're coming out of the field. You know, okay. I left my safety place at the camera. And there I came face to face with suffering, starving people. 
And when I walked out on that field, it was silent. And I said, and there were a thousand or more people sitting there. And I said to the nurse, I said, so quiet. She said, yes, they do not want to lose one calorie by speaking. Now, that was just stunning to me. I mean, I'm thinking, how many calories am I losing here by talking? Would not lose one calorie by speaking. And so when they stood up and started coming to us, I knew those calories that they were using to come to speak to us. And as I stood there and they, people started giving their, you know, why they needed to be let in. And this woman came up with two children. The nurse that was with me could speak the language and they were talking. And suddenly this woman fell to the ground. Later found out she had died. And later I found out the story that this woman had four children. Her husband had died of starvation. She had heard that there was help several miles to this camp and walked with her four children. Two of them died on the way. She buried two of them on the way. And then those two that were standing there with her were their survivors. And that day, I thought, I'm a mother just like she is, and I have four children also. And that's when I realized that starvation is evil as well, that it's every person is made in the image of God, and this is where we need to begin to share what we have and how we can begin to bring light into the evil. Uh, so that changed my life, and that was in 1985, which then um, uh, catapulted me, but I, I wanted to start something immediately, but it wasn't, and I talked about the fullness of time, and start till my, World Hope started in 1996. And that's where many more countries than I became involved in. But those two were formative in my own heart and soul. Talk about life-changing trips. Yes, exactly. So at, at that point, it's 1985. I mean, lots of people travel for different reasons. Uh -huh. You you go on two trips on two different continents, two different parts of the world, and you see suffering. You see pain. Um, did that... Was that an epiphany moment? Did it, did it awaken something that was dormant in you? Um, what was it? That's a good question. I think that had been dormant in me for a long time. Exactly. And I think many times, it, you know, we go through very our very life stages of where we are, and we build on what we have. But one of the things I, I've said many times is our call, our, what drives us. I think I, I love that when we're talking about self-awareness. What drives it? What drives you? And you don't always know. Or sometimes you go back to your childhood and say, well, you know, I want to be a fireman or I want to be a nurse or something. Well, what are those What are those principles in that that was already there in you? Right. You're not, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to run out and be a fireman, but there's something else in there that created that desire. And those then begin to flourish throughout your life in different forms, different ways. I mean, I've done other things, obviously. And, uh, but it be, it began to part of that, and I so it was, I was saying it gets formed early on, and then you respond in different ways in your life. So, wh what what were some of those early things that you think happened in your life that that shaped this this desire to I don't know see injustice and yeah right suffering and and be be receptive to it. 
Well, I think I go back to what I grew up in Oklahoma. Oklahoma was a, was a segregated state. Uh, and every Wednesday, a person of color would come to our house and pick up the trash. It was always early morning. She was always singing. And I would just stun. I would go to the, we had a big glass in our front door. And I would just press my nose against it at six years old and watch her. And I remember saying to my dad one day, where does she live? I never saw people of color any other time. We never went to town, quote unquote, town. You know, we didn't have shopping malls. Went to town to get your stuff. People of color went different days than we went. And um, so uh, I remember saying to him, uh, where does she live? I don't see anybody like So one day he said, I will take you out there. And I will never forget that day, Clark. The paved road ended and the dirt road began. And it was what it was then known as Colored Town. Mm-hmm. And I was overwhelmed. This town that's right next to me in Enid, Oklahoma, that town is mine. And I said to my dad, I said, well, why don't they come to my school? And uh, I was in the first grade. And he said, well, they have their own school. And then I said, well, why don't they come to our church? My father was a pastor. And, you know, your church is the center of your life. Why don't they come to our church? Oh, they have their own church. Somehow, in my six-year-old mind, that never computed right. So I think it became that early call of justice. So in 1985, you're you're back, and you're like, what, five years old all over again? Exactly. Now, actually, I worked in in the 70s, all in the 70s, right after the Martin Luther King uh, death, and and in the cities that had riots and protests and whatever. It was in Kansas City, and I was part of that. And then I worked for nine years in the urban context of Kansas City, Missouri, running programs that were funded through the Department of Labor and uh, and housing, HUD. So I worked in that, and then I, so I did that there, too, in that process. But then now here in the 80s, it's global. It moves yeah. local to global. So uh, lots of countries, you've been to 88 countries, there's lots of countries that we could talk about. Yeah. Uh, and lots of countries that you have extensive experience in, but uh, today we're going to talk about Sierra Leone. Right. Um, okay. What in the world could the United States, could we in the United States have to learn from Sierra Leone? Like, isn't this an impoverished country? Like, I tell you what, the people in Sierra Leone, West Africa, got to remember this, it's, it's right there, the hump of Africa, and it's kind of right there on that, on the coast. Uh, the people of Sierra Leone are some of the most resilient people I have ever met. And one of the things also, Muslims and Christians get along there. And the president of, of Sierra Leone one time said, if there's anything we could export to the world is how Christians and Muslims can live together in peace. Oh, all right. Well, how do they do it? And the, it, I think partly is they've not been radicalized mm-hmm. uh, and uh, on either side. Uh, they, they've lived together for all these years. Islam came to... Sierra Leone, um, oh my, is, uh, well, it's from the north down, and uh, I don't know, 1600s or something. Um, and uh, actually, when, tra- if, when people were trying to get around Africa and down and around and all of that, it came. And then um, Lebanese came, uh, and they were early on, they were trying to get around and liked it and stayed. So there's a large population of Lebanese. In, um, in Sierra Leone as well. Uh, so um, I, I think that's, that, that's a, a piece of it. Uh, Sierra Leone has been through enormous 
thing. And of course, we've got to realize that the port for the slave trade was out of Sierra Leone. And there is Bunce Island is, is there. And you can go to Bunce Island today and see where people were rounded up and the slave ships went out. And not long ago, a colleague of mine went and was taking a photographer with him from, from a particular church that he pastors. And that photographer traced his family back to that island. It was very emotional experience for him to be there and trace his family that had come out of Bunce Island on those slave ships through the Atlantic. Okay, so my guess is, is that most people listening to this podcast um, have little understanding of Sierra Leone, right? Okay. They, they, maybe, maybe they could identify it as being a country in Africa. Maybe they could identify West Africa. If they know anything, maybe they know about blood diamonds. That's right. Blood diamonds. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So just what is, what's this, what is this, this word, this phrase blood diamonds I associate with Sierra Leone, but yeah. what is, talk to me about, give me contact. Okay. I'll talk to you about blood diamonds, but I want to talk about first the resources. Uh, Sierra Leone has many, many re chocolate, big resource, diamonds, big resource. The best diamonds in the world come from, from uh, Sierra Leone and you learn about the whole diamond cartel, et cetera. Uh, bauxite is another one that comes. So they have resources in the ground in Sierra Leone and they have been exploited. Um, so they, Sierra Leone was first colonized by the British. So, um, so it was colonized as much of Africa was colonized. So they were colonized by the British. They received their independence in 1961. So that's not that far. Right. 60 years uh, received their independence. Uh, also, I want to say that it was known there were such great universities in Sierra Leone that it was known as the Athens of West Africa. Wow. Yes. Great scholars. We've got uh -huh. great scholars that come from Sierra Leone. Uh, and those universities that were there, and some are still in existence. Fort Bay College is one still in existence today. Great research. Great researchers, but you know, so I, I did a, just parentheses here. I did a little work with with them and connected them with scholars elsewhere who are publishing because you can't publish if nobody knows you and you don't have any resources to do it. So they connected them with some other scholars that they could publish together and begin to get the great data that they were researching out uh, to the broader world. Um, but 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 diamonds then became um, the center for the war that took place in from 1991, 92, something up to 2002, a 10-year brutal civil war. And uh, the reason is that the diamonds were being smuggled out uh, and children and were used as, as slaves to do the work. All It was horrible. And yet you had the big, you had Tiffany's, you had all these people buying those diamonds at cheap prices. It was about using poor people to to in for the rich so the united states also got into it and began to to say wait a minute so i joined several congress people in a protest in front of tiffany's in chevy chase maryland <laughs> on the front lines etc and um and actually they came together at higher levels and began to push that down um but that became then the money that the rebels used for those blood diamonds for their war and it was a war of power. It was not a war of uh, of uh, tribal. It was not a tribal war or a religious war. It was a war of power. Mm. And uh, they wanted the president out. They wanted char. They wanted 
the people who are using these children, what a power. And it was brutal. It was brutal. It was one of the most brutal wars. And we talk about what's just recently happened in a mosque. But, but Clark, I mean, I saw, I cannot begin to tell you the hundreds and hundreds of people, the way they marked their territory was to cut off people's hands, arms, legs. They first started with hands, so you can't vote. They just walk into a village, chopped with machetes. And I even saw then it became just nobody. It didn't matter. It was not men's hands. It was just flagrant. Babies. I saw babies' arms cut off like this. Uh, uh, they would find women in the street that were pregnant. It would rip up their stomach and take the baby out and throw it away. Many women died. Some lived, and I had those conversations with some of those women that lived. It was the most uh, uh, brutal and gruesome war you can imagine. Wow. Uh, and so that was what um, that was what was that was what was happening. And so it it the, no city later the later the city of Freetown, the capital city, was invaded. But much of this is going on in the countryside. And these are people who had no reason, no way to get out. They had no way. They were trapped behind rebel lines. Uh, I could tell you many stories, but I'll tell you one is our the leader. I we partnered with the Wesleyan Church denomination. There, it's been there since the late 1800s. Which I might add, the reason the Wesleyan Church was there was because in the late 1800s, a Sierra Leonean came to New York and said. We could you come over and help us with hospitals and education? We heard that you were abolitionists and we can trust you. Wow. And so that's how white missionaries came from the states over at the invitation of at this invitation. At the it, invitation yeah. of this Sierra Leonean man. Uh so it wasn't like we're gonna come in and, you know, fix you all and we're the white saviors. They were at the invitation of this Sierra Leonean man who said we need, and that's exactly what they did. They came in and they, I can't imagine, they went up the country and started a hospital and started schools and et cetera. So they've been there all of these years. So, uh, yeah. We were emailing back and forth in preparation for this, and you told me you wanted to focus on Sierra Leone. Uh -huh. I, I asked you, what's one thing you love about Sierra Leone that makes you say, like, why don't we do that? And, and you said, you wrote back their ability to recover from a brutal war with truth and reconciliation. Exactly right. How how did they do that? Well, I'm talking about is terrible. And, terrible, exactly. Right, and, and there's a movie on this, isn't there? Did they make a movie about the about the blood war or the diamond blood diamonds? Well, it's a blood diamonds, but it's about the war. They haven't yeah. talked. I don't think in that movie. Yeah, the movie. Uh, DiCaprio is in that movie. I mean, this is, uh, again, for anyone listening, this is as, as as brutal a war as you can imagine. Right. And and they have this ability to recover from a brutal war with truth and reconciliation. So where did this come from? How how do they do it? Because we live, all right, let's just say at a much, much lower level, in our society today in the United States, we are deeply divided. Right, exactly. So, how? Well, when the the peace agreements were finally signed, they uh, in in the the treaties were finally signed, and then uh, they said we will come out of this with the same thing that happened in South Africa. We mentioned earlier uh, Nelson Mandela. The 
So in South Africa, they they set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Yeah, those exact words, right? And so then, then um, Sierra Leone said, this is what we're going to do. And so they appointed various church leaders in, in this and other people as well to begin to put this Truth and Reconciliation Commission together. And it, it and then it went out to the smallest village in every place. Everyone in the country had input into this. And then people that had done dastardly deeds came to those people. They saw them face to face, came to those people and asked forgiveness. Uh, and it is a very powerful, powerful piece. Uh, and it took several years. But the Truth and Reconciliation Commission worked. And then the new president that came in, Ernest Caromel, he was in for 10 years, have 10 year term limits. And he was the president and he continued to move that on through in brilliant ways. And it's interesting because he came in as a businessman. He had not been a politician. So I, you know, I, I don't say that it's good or bad, but never, nevertheless, he saw it in this way and was able to move that on through. And uh, it's very fascinating if you go. So then this was a, a study then that was done a few years ago that now Sierra Leone is the most peaceful country in West Africa. And then you go to the Global Peace Index, and they are number 23 in the world. Do you think that um, being a country where Muslims and Christians have had learned and known how to peacefully coexist for so long helped them in this process? I think so. And I think in the DNA, when I said that they were known as the Athens of West Africa, they're in this thinking process that had taken place all these years. I don't care how poor they were. It, th they were rich in their mind. Yeah. And and we tend in our and we tend to judge people uh intellectual ability and who they are by their wealth. And that's wrong. Right. Uh and so there was that kind of in that DNA that had in the various uh tribes throughout the country, but it had that string a stream through it of thinking and um, and evaluating human human life uh, and valuing each other uh, in this, and that's why this war seems so right out so, of sorts for them. So it's almost like they had uh, something dormant lying in them. Yeah, right, right, and and that this period of the nation's history. Yeah, was actually outside of its character. I would agree with you. That's exactly right. When you look at their early, early history, and their and their writers, they had good historians of people that wrote uh, uh, about who who people who people of Sierra Leone are, and uh, and where they came from, and so forth. It it would it was totally out of character. So, uh, truth and reconciliation. I mean, <laughs> was it really very much modeling the Nelson Mandela? Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. So, right. they were. They were like literally trying to copy. Yeah. And actually trying to copy what Nelson Mandela did. In that's right. And how that worked in South Africa. And they, that was the Bible. That's how okay. they. I know that you have been involved, as, as you just alluded to a few minutes ago, it, it, working in, in racial issues uh -huh. in the 70s. Um, have we ever had in the United States anything that resembled a truth and reconciliation period? 
you know what I I like to go back and think we did in reconstruction uh and uh, that that we we're trying to work that during the reconstruction days but it just people couldn't take it right. and finally no we can't live this way we've got to live and then that's when the Jim Crow laws came in they knew they could never go back to pre 18 to the Emancipation Proclamation but we could right. begin to put in Jim Crow laws and keep all of this very separate and keep us and an underclass absolute underclass in our society and I think that's where we've had to struggle all these years. In fact, uh, the person that I have high respect for, and I was with him well, several years ago, we we're talking about reconciliation. He said, he's African-American. He said, I've about given up because he said, I believe in the collective unconscious. You got to think about that. A culture with a collective unconscious has still sees us as two thirds human because it was in the constitution in that way. Mm -hmm. And he said that that still stays there with white people in, in our collective unconscious. Well, I'd like to say that we can be redeemed from that. We can get over that and we can get out of that um, and uh, and begin to see people uh, made in the image of God. And, and uh, I love the, you know, the Old Testament has this statement um, in Leviticus and then it's repeated in the New Testament. Of course, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart and soul and your neighbor as yourself. But one of my good rabbi friends is a great scholar and he said to me, you know, that, that gets, that's not the correct translation. He said that last part is love your neighbor as your equal. Hmm. And because there are days I don't like myself. So therefore I don't have yeah, anybody else. Right. Uh, and, um, uh, and so it is as your equal. And I think that's where it, where we really fuck out have to begin to fine tune that thing, uh, that, that we see as our equal. So this period of truth and reconciliation, uh, there. How was how was someone who was not chopping off someone's hand in Sierra Leone? How could they be an active participant in truth and reconciliation? Because in the United States, if we talk about truth and rec like let, let's have a period of truth and reconciliation. One of the immediate answers you're going to get is, well, I've never owned slaves and my right. my family didn't either, right? And so what does truth and reconciliation look like in Sierra Leone for someone who never chopped off someone's hand? Because they were a part of it and they saw it and they knew it. And so uh, then they and then they meet these people that did. And then how do they work with that? And I think the way you compare that to the United States, I think it's, it is so much, it helps us if we understand the history. Mm -hmm. We can't say, I think that's a cop out. Well, I never owned a slave, so I don't need, no, 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 I don't care. And I don't even, you know, you go back, all of us, we don't even know, our, we don't go, can't even go that far back in our family to even know. Most right. But we have got to understand and begin to have empathy with that history. Uh, and as I have done personally, as I have read and understood that history and understood that uh, I, it, you're constantly learning and constantly learning, and that creates the empathy within you to be able to have reconciliation. Okay. Okay. So what are, I guess in Sierra Leone, let's talk about Sierra Leone. What are daily practices daily routines 
rhythms of life that you think uh, train people to to be open to the ideas of truth and reconciliation? Well, first of all, if you live in a village, you all live together. You know, people don't stay in their hut. So when people come or their house, there'll be little houses there too. I'm talking about village life. I'm not talking about the city life. And uh, I remember some of the people who came to visit and they kept saying, they were walking down the street with me one day and we were, I think down in some, we were at a conference someplace. And he said to me, Joanna, where are all the people? Wait, there was nobody walking in the street. You know, we're the only two people in the street. And I said, oh, they're in their house. He's, well, no, no, no. They should be out. They should be out, you know. <laughs> so part of that is is village life, mm-hmm. uh, not isolation. Okay. So village life. In village life, your aunt, your uncle, your, you take care of all your family. You know, in the, in the war times, I remember some of our folks who lived in the capital city of Freetown, which was safer at that moment, although they did invade that one as well. But it was safer. So many people... Yeah, out in the villages, sent their kids to live with their aunts and uncles and whatever. And, and so somebody was always living with somebody. Uh, so there's that communal life as opposed to individual life. So, all right, this is the third interview I've done, all right, talking with someone who was sharing with me about France, uh-huh. about Bali. All right, I have my own experience having lived in Guatemala. Right. We are individualistic in the United States. Precisely. So I'm in, I'm in my house. I'm good. Don't bother me. That's right. Exactly. Right. Um, okay. So is, is it worth it? Is it worth exploring? How could we be more like Sierra Leone or do we just say, you know what? This is who we are. Well, I think there's richness that we get from from all cultures, and we need to open up to that and the richness that we get. So when I think about Sierra Leone, yes, I think of more uh, more caring, more togetherness, more um, uh, with this. I was just thinking about, so you do, when you're in Sierra Leone, and particularly in the village I'm talking about, you have paths. They call them footpaths. You mm-hmm. walk the footpaths. Well, I remember one time walking the footpaths with some of our leaders, and... Um, I didn't say anything. And because in our country, if you walk a footpath, the person is in front of you, you don't talk. You know, you wait till you get to someplace where you get face to face. And, um, or you're walking side, where our sidewalks are, you know, we can walk side by side and talk. And uh, so they remind, oh, no, no, we have many, many, many deep conversations on the footpath. Interesting. So they don't even, so they said, no, 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 you don't need to look at somebody's face. Uh, we trust, and we know what they're saying, and we trust them in what they're saying, not just having to look at their face. I mean, that was very insightful. You know, how many times do we get our cues from somebody's face? Yeah, so it's the truth or not, or whatever. Right. But I, I just thought the footpath, the footpath conversations, uh, are different than what we have here. Where would we find a footpath conversation in the United States? We don't. We don't. I don't, I don't know where we would, unless, I don't know. And I don't know that we have to, but I'm just saying. Footpaths are a, I, I don't know, is it, it's part of connection? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, part of community. Um, we met a woman here living in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Yeah. And uh, a woman from Zambia who's living here. Uh-huh. 
And I, my, um, again, I've not, I've not been to Af. Okay, I've been to Africa, but I've been to Egypt, which I kind of feel like doesn't count as Africa, even though it technically is on the African continent. But um, in my travels around the world, I feel like most people in Alabama have no idea how isolated this woman from Zambia must feel. Yeah, exactly. Because she is living, and she's talked with us about it, about how isolated she feels. That she, yes. She's living in this this house of these people in rural Alabama when she is used to just a flurry of activity around yes. her every day. Absolutely. So um, if we want truth and reconciliation, it feels like truth and reconciliation comes out of community. Right. Because when you're in community, you feel empathy. Yes, that's right. Uh, so one of the things that I say that people are sometimes like, they can't believe I, I'm saying this, but I think that one of the things that opened me up most politically was Facebook. Uh-huh. And and I think this had the, the, I think Facebook's had the opposite effect over time. <laughs> we, we just become more polarized. We we block and, un, and unfollow people who have divergent views from us, right? Uh-huh. But when my friend was posting photos of their kid and I saw that this is a, right, this is a beautiful family. Here's a mom with her two-year-old. Here's a dad on a hike. Like they're just, they're just people doing normal things who happen to have different political beliefs than me. Uh Uh-huh. Right. It humanized different political beliefs instead of, right, the, like the background I had come from, it was... It was, you know, the, the left hates America. Right. Uh-huh. Right. And they want to destroy America. And I was like, no, these are just good people who have different right. political views than me. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think this is where we, when you're talking about that, um, uh, me, like my mother was a Democrat and my father was a Republican. And we had a great conversation at the table. But, you know, that, that, those views never impacted my parents never divorced over that, you know. <laughs> I mean, and so I kind of grew up with this. Oh, yeah, okay, that's it, and that's it. And, uh, and I remember one time, um, my dad did not like Harry Truman, but my mother loved Harry Truman, you know. So I remember we stopped at a place, we were dri- driving out uh, west and stopped at this filling station, and this man came and said, my dad got out of the car, and he said, oh, my goodness, I thought you were Harry Truman, because my dad did look like him. <laughs> my dad, I remember driving on my dad said, never stop at that filling station again, you know. <laughs> and my mother's, oh, Dick, his name is Dick, oh, get over it, you know. But it didn't, it was that, it was that, that kind of thing. Some, somehow now it's all gotten hooked into our faith and our soul. And, right. But I, regarding Sierra Leone, uh, that then had to, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the discussions began to, lift people above those divisions. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait a minute. We belong to each other. We're not going to be divided with this. So you've been to Sierra Leone how many times? I don't know. I've never I mean, been. dozens, right? Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Dozens. Uh, you've spent all told probably month, months right. of your life. Uh-huh. I don't Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe more. A lot, a lot of time in Sierra Leone. Can, can you think of anything that um, was happening in plain sight in front of you 
that you didn't notice for a long time. And then you were like, oh, <laughs> this is what they're doing. That's a great question. Um, probably gambling. And I didn't know that they were gambling. Yeah. How? How? How are they? Well, I, they there was kind of a game going or whatever. And, and uh, it'd be at a restaurant or on there. They're, it isn't necessarily restaurants, but they have restaurants. But during those days of the war, I mean, hotels were closed. There was nothing. Uh-huh. And some been destroyed and et cetera. So there would be little kiosks like thing out, I guess is the best word to say. And uh, then I would find, or I mean, I saw prostitution. I did. And now that, wait a minute. Ah, that is prostitution going on, you know. Uh, so it would be those kinds of things, I think, that would, I didn't expect and it would surprise me uh, that that's what was, that's what was happening. Another thing, too, I remember, you know, we think about driving at night without a problem. And we were in McKinney, which is a town up north, and we need to get back. And I said, oh, we can drive tonight. And the people there said, no, 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 we don't drive at night. That's yeah. when held up. Yeah. Uh, and it was a good road. It wasn't a, a bad road. But I, you know, so that was, oh, well, I guess we're going to have to be late tomorrow. Yeah, we'll be late. That yeah. didn't bother them. Right. Everybody understood if you finish this up, you couldn't get to Freetown in time for that meeting. So we'll just wait till you get there. Now, what do we do in the United States? No, no, no. You got to be on time. You got to be there. Uh, and uh, so I think when we talk about people who have a different time rhythm, we're, we, we are always negative in the U.S., in the Western world about that. Don't they care? Don't they want to show up on time or whatever? Well, when you've lived with this, this uh blurred time kind of thing, I guess, simply because of the way your life is. Mm -hmm. And I remember one time um, I kept, I was at a church in the U.S. and the people from a lot of people in Sierra Leone, they'd always come in late. And someone said to me, oh, no, no, it is not about, it is the, it is an event. You show up at an event whenever you want to show up and you're valued because you showed up at the event. Not that you got there on time. Yeah. That's we understandings of time. We're so time sensitive in the U.S., and I feel like we're becoming increasingly. Yeah. In my family, we are. Yeah. I mean, my wife is in Santa Barbara right now. Uh huh. And and it's like, and her mom's sick and in the hospital, and oh, wow. but but um, and, and doing better, I should just say. Yeah. But um, she's with her family, and it's like, okay, we're we're doing three things today, right? Yeah. And and one of them it is is going to the hospital right but it's like her sisters and her dad are like well we're just we're doing three things whenever and my wife's like but i i got a call at this time and i've got a call at this time yeah, and i've got i've got to make sure i leave for the hospital by this time in order to be have spent my time at the hospital in order to get back for my call right not right exactly but it's so driven yeah exactly time. exactly it drives us and then we have no patience with any other culture that doesn't uh and, and so those cultures and we're like what is wrong with you yeah and we want to say now shape up that if you did this then you wouldn't be so poor you know because we've attached uh money to all of this kind of thing someone was telling you recently uh that they took some people to india and you know you've got the caste system and you've got people who in certain castes that's the only jobs you can do it and, and these people from america well they just need to work harder they just need to work harder you know well didn't quite understand how the system worked you know if you're in certain castes you only street sweep the streets. You can't you can't move up. You know that's what your cast says, and yeah. so those are 
I think things that we begin to have to value people for who they are, what they bring to the table. So you're talking about rhythms also. I think when we look at rhythms and I'm, again, I'm talking about village life, but very much still, still in the city, all the people go to work and have jobs in, in different ways, but in the village, women are up there at the crack of dawn. Women are up at the crack of dawn. They've got to get the food ready for that day. Uh, and, uh, and, and they also have to get water. They have to go get water and, and little girls, you know, it's all pretty segregated. Little girls have to go get water and their mom and they're with them. Now, this is the blessing of a difference. If a well is in the community, they don't have to walk that long distance. The well is there. The water is there. It's enough for the little girl then to go on to school. And so those are big things, Clark, that help in these rural areas that we, people don't understand. I well remember in Zambia when we were uh, drilling a, a well and um, uh, and it take, took a long time and Zambia is very dry. I uh, had to go deep and I kept thinking, well, so the woman said, you want to come with me to, down to get the water? And yeah, you know, walk five kilometers down to get the water and back. And that's a long time and whatever. Uh, and I that's what I saw. And so no wonder that we got back and said, wasn't long until the water, whoop, here it came. And those women cried. I mean, that was new light yeah. that yeah. there's water here now. So I think the rhythms of life, women are, it's about preparing the food. It's about washing the clothes. They go to the river to wash the clothes. Well, now they got water to wash the clothes with right there. So it, it shrinks their time. And then women can begin to learn to read and begin to learn other things with this. Uh, now in the cities, in, in early in Sierra Leone, even during the war, we started microfinance programs. Yeah. And uh, women were then able to start little businesses and be very, um, and we did it out in the other, in the rural areas too, but, uh, and be, begin to become entrepreneurial. And I well remember one woman, uh, you use palm oil. People go up and get their leaves and palm oil, and they cook with palm oil and all that. And so she started a little business with palm oil where she's very entrepreneurial. And she got a lot of palm oil and she hired some other women to sell on another corner and another corner and another corner. And she got all, I mean, and then she said to me, and I was able to buy a house for the, her husband been killed in the war. I was able to buy a house for the first time and she bought a house and she named the house after our program, which is called Leap. I named my house. This is the Leap house, she said. And then finally, she was invited to the UN to tell her her story because she sold the most palm oil of anybody in the country. And even Robert Branson from uh, Richard Branson, I mean, from Virgin Airlines, started talking with her about, wonder if we could fly a plane on palm oil, you know. <laughs> um, this is a woman never dreamed. I mean, she hopeless. Husband been killed in the war. She had two children. She didn't know what she was. That one little $25 uh, grant um, a loan it was a loan she paid interest on it yeah you had to pay it back 25 dollar loan um got her all of that so that's the entrepreneurialism that's in the people that we don't see until we open up those doors for them to be able to see it but but they're doing it anyway but when they but i'm saying the entrepreneurialism that in our world says she's entrepreneurial mm-hmm. uh, but she was entrepreneurial in everything this there and the rhythms of life but these great doors that open increase the va- increase um, their opportunities. Yeah, there's a lot we could say. We have to get into a whole conversation about humanitourism, 
right? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Exactly. But but why why would you say to someone that they should travel to a country like Sierra Leone? Be- and they need to go with a humble heart, not a judgmental heart, and a heart to learn. I mean, Clark, I took twenty five pastors to Zambia during the HIV AIDS days, and I said, not a one of you are going to teach or preach. <laughs> You're here to learn. I want you to hear these pastors preach. And did you win the miracle? <laughs> it was a miracle. No, they didn't. I know they had plenty of sermons, and I said, because what's going to happen? You're going to compete with each other on what kind of sermon. You're not going to learn from these folks. Yeah. There's plenty of stuff to learn from the people. So when I take people, it is not to feel sorry and etc. You are here to learn. These people have value that you can take the values back in your own heart and soul. Mm. I get it. If you want to give money to build a school, I'm all for that. You know, right? Uh, but you're not going to come over here and tell people how to live. You're going to learn, and then you're going to partner with them in their dreams. What's What's the greatest gift that Sierra Leone has given you? Oh my, uh, friendship. You know, just deep friendship. Uh, I just saw today on Facebook a young man that had worked in our amputee care center. He he had learned, we've been able to get him some training on occupational therapy, and he'd learned that, and, oh, he was great. And I just learned today someone sent me a note that he had just died. You know, oh, my heart fell uh, for all the thousands of people that he had worked with because he opened up this amputee care center downtown Freetown, and uh, um, and all the people that he'd been able to help. And I just, you know, I don't know how he died. I don't know anything about it, but... Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, I, I mean, life is difficult still in Sierra Leone. And uh, one of our past leaders, uh, the country director, uh, his daughter was killed uh, by a vehicle. You know, vehicles are difficult there. And you lot of, lot of motorcycles and all this kind of thing, a lot of mountains and hills. So uh, you just, you, you, you learn with that. But also another thing too, Clark, I think, uh, during the war, I was we were able to get there because we were an NGO. We could fly in on UN helicopters. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I was there with them during much of that time. And I, I think the, the piece that holds me with them is we suffered together, too. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I joined in their suffering. And I remember going in at one point and, and um, the, when the rebels invaded Freetown, uh, 40,000 people ran to the stadium. Uh, Freetown is a big soccer country i mean sierra leone and forty thousand people ran to the state the big stadium there well then it wasn't sustainable and people died <clears throat> so we had just flown in on the helicopter and uh <clears throat> and they found out they were going to have a memorial service for many of the people that had died and they asked me if i would speak at that memorial service and i just thought how can i do that mm. um but i stayed now the rest of the people had to get out of the country because that plane over in guinea was going to take off and i thought i'll figure out a way out of this place i don't know i'll stay i'll figure yeah. out a way out someplace because i'm going to stay with the people during this time um that was when i first understood that service that day was the first i really grasped about what lament meant and that the song that they read was a song of lament mm. uh and yet the choir sang in a 
It was almost a dirge, but it was hopeful. It said, we are on a journey. Mm. It made, it was written, they wrote, and it was beautiful. We are on a journey. It wasn't like, this is the end. We're on a journey. Um, I said a few things, but I, and then, then that day they read the names of the people that we were saying, and I, thousands died, but in this particular service was the ones actually from the Wesleyan church and, uh, read their names, age, cause of death, you know, like six years old, starvation, you know, it, and just, I'm not that day, but that, but that was, that was such, I began to look at the, the whole book of Lamentations and it was a little mess. And after that, it was interesting. One of the pastors came to me and he said, you know, this was a sad day, but now I have hope. I'm going to open up my church for all the unaccompanied children that are around. Yeah. And they also, would they have known that you were kind of taking a risk or putting yourself out, out on a limb by being there at that? Yeah, they knew that. Yeah. Uh, that service. Yeah. So yep. The trust that was built. That's right. Because they knew that you put yourself out on a limb. That's right. Yeah. The trust that was built. And, uh, and so there's been that. So I think there's that relationship and that trust. Yeah. I trust them. They trusted me. Uh, we were in this together. Um, and so that day, or then later, I, I got it because I had to get this plane out again, or it wasn't going to go back for another week to the to wherever. So we went down. There was a, a little helicopter pad, and the helicopters went in and out. So two of the leaders took me down to the pad, and I was like thumbing a ride out. And uh, so this first helicopter landed, and uh, I went up, and they this guy spoke Russian. I didn't know. They didn't know. So lo and behold, one of the leaders that was with me said, oh, I speak Russian. <laughs> Except for Russia. Like, you know, these are brilliant folks. And so he went up and tried. He said, Joanne, they can't take his full. Okay. So then another one came. Another one came. Finally, I got one out with Doctors Without Borders. There was space for me to get out on that one. And I got over to Guinea in time to get the plane, to get home. But, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so many of these folks spoke multi not only local languages, but multiple global languages as well. <laughs> Joanne, someone could start a podcast and have have a whole series of just months of interviews with you to unpack your travel stories. <laughs> They've been, been very interesting. Been very interesting. Yeah. But hey, this has been great. Maybe a good place to stop is is right where you took us. And that is, I think if there's anything we can we can learn from Sierra Leone. It's that it, it's that community is built right. when people are willing to suffer together. That's right. Yeah, yeah exactly right. Together. That's exactly right. So this has been great. Uh, I always love connecting with you. Um, I love it. Clark is great. I loved it. I love it. Loved working with you too. All right. Thanks for being on. All right. Thank you. Aha. Uh -huh.